Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you provide for us not only sufficiently, but in generosity and in plenty. May we ever remember all the good deeds which you have done for us, especially the life in the life, death, resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you now and forever. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. <clears throat> Last week, towards the end of my sermon, I mentioned something that I was convicted of recently, but as I looked at the time and realized I was well past the time I usually like to have land the sermon on and rapidly approaching the upper limits of at least some of your patience. <laughs> I ejected parts of my sermon so that I wouldn't hear too, too much about it. But that works out because I can reuse my illustration from last week and tie it in yet again to this week. Last week, I mentioned that during catechism class, we were going over the Decalogue, and we came across the fourth commandment, thou shalt keep holy the Sabbath day. And as we talked about it and talked about the illness of busyness in our culture and our desire to go and go and go and go, I became convicted that I, in my own way, was not keeping holy the Sabbath day. As we've been working on our house, I found that there are times that I just want to work and work and work and work and work. And Julie can tell you about this if you're really interested. <laughs> but this included on Sunday, I would get home and I'd keep going, working hard to try and get the house to look nice for our child, which is coming quicker than we might expect, as well as for Julie. This, this desire in and of itself was not a bad desire. But in breaking that Sabbath day rest, I was being ill to my body. I was not spending enough time with my wife. And I was not giving my body, and I was not trusting that the Lord's provision was sufficient. The reason I brought it up last week is different than why I'm bringing it up this week. But this week, it helps to illustrate the, the action of sin. So often we see the Decalogue and we see these lists. And for example, the last part of the Decalogue isn't that hard to follow. Probably most of us haven't struggled with having affairs. Certainly most of us haven't struggled with murder. But yet there's something deeper going on there. Each of the Decalogue commandments shows us a way in which we can fail to trust the Lord, in which we can say, I know better than you, God. And for me, it was not keeping holy the Sabbath day. For me, it was saying, I need to get this done right now, or else something terrible might happen. So I'm not going to keep holy the Sabbath day. I'm going to work and work and work, and work. At the heart of our sin is the thought that we know better, and that what God has provided and given us is insufficient. 
Now, in order to understand our gospel passage, keep that idea of insufficiency and sufficiency in mind, but we have to rewind to chapter 5 of the gospel according to St. John. Towards the beginning of that, that chapter, Jesus heals a man, which is extraordinary in and of itself. And one would think, well, that's really amazing. But he does it on a Sabbath day. And this irks the religious leaders of his time because he has broken the Sabbath rest by doing work, by doing the work of healing. And when confronted with it, he makes it clear that he and his father, he equates himself with God, and he makes it clear that he and his father has the same will, which of course further raises their heckles. What this means is in Christ's mind, and for us when we think about Christ, we realize that he does the will of his father, and the father's will is his will. In other words, they share a will. As we start chapter 6, just before what we read this morning, we read after this or in a little bit later period. So this doesn't follow right on the heels and we don't need to read it as being chronological. But St. John puts it there very intentionally. This story follows on it so that in the back of the reader's minds, there's this thing that just happened with the religious leaders. And Jesus is about to do something even greater. It also, we learn a little bit before where we started reading that what we hear occurs right around the Passover time. For the Jews of that time, it was a period of great nationalistic zeal. Think something like the 4th of July, but with religious undertones, as well as if we were occupied. Whenever the 4th of July would come around, then if we were an occupied nation, the occupier would become worried that something might happen because it was such an important holiday for them. Likewise, for the Jews, the Passover was that because they remembered what happened on the first Passover. They were delivered from Egypt. And so likewise, they hoped and expected that perhaps this Passover or the next Passover one would come to deliver them from the Romans. And so there's this tension building up in this passage that we start as this great crowd comes towards Jesus. Perhaps there they want a good show to see what might God might do for them. This is often our motivation, is it not? We often want a good show to satisfy us. Somebody once asked, well, how, are, how is our church going to grow? To which I answered, well, I'm just going to keep preaching the word. <laughs> which was not a very satisfactory answer, but inside my head I thought something more cynical. We could hire a fancy band with at least one attractive man in it, one attractive woman, and they would wear skinny jeans. I would wear skinny jeans also, but you wouldn't want that. <laughs> And then I'd preach something interesting. You would laugh a lot, which I'm glad you still laugh at me sometimes. At the right times. At the wrong times, that's less satisfactory. And you'd be entertained and you would go home and you'd probably not remember a whole lot of that except that it was fun. 
So often we want entertainment. And we can feel high and mighty. Well, we're not like that. But I think a lot of us are here because we like the worship. Or perhaps we go home and we read trashy novels and never read the scripture outside of church. Or perhaps we spend hours upon hours watching TV and no time praying and resting in the Lord. The crowd comes because they want to be entertained. They want to see something amazing. Maybe he'll heal somebody else or raise somebody from the dead or fix a broken arm or make somebody see again. My, what a good show that would be. And so they come and they come. But God is about to teach them something greater. God is about to show him his sufficiency in every circumstance. Those of you who have taken classes here perhaps have found my teaching style irritating at times. You ask a question and sometimes instead of giving you an answer, I ask a question back. I did this to somebody recently as we were studying a part of scripture and they wanted to know what this word meant. And I said, well, go find out. The reason that I did this was because if they go and I give them the right resources and they dig deeper and deeper, they read scripture around that, they will be thoroughly formed in that word. They will know what that word means. And then when their wife asks or their friend asks, they can do the same thing for them. And it becomes embedded. And this is what Jesus does to Philip. He asks Philip, well, where can we buy bread? <clears throat> Philip is, of course, the logical person to ask because he is from this region. So he would know, well, Jim is the baker over in that town, and he usually has extra bread at the end of the day. Or John usually has extra bread over in that other town. So he would know. So he's the logical person to ask here. But we also learn that this is that test. Jesus wants him to think and see the answer spelled out, to internalize it. So later on when Philip comes along and he needs something or he doesn't know how God is going to answer that prayer, he remembers back, remembers that Christ provided sufficiently and abundantly. <clears throat> and God, of course, has done this throughout history. God tested Israel in the wilderness, showing them that he can be trusted for all their provisions. My kind of favorite set of psalms we read at the beginning of this week, although they were quite long, there are 105 and 106. 105 looks at God's actions throughout the world, throughout history, and it just spells them out one after another after another. 106 is even cooler as Israel looks back at her history and says, look at what God has done. Remember this. Remember, remember, remember. And this is our call of Christian and Christians, and in fact, the power of the liturgy is that it calls us to remember all that the Lord has done, all that the Lord has done for the world in Christ in his death and resurrection, for us in Christ freeing us from our sins, and for us personally, as he's provided for us. He says, remember, 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 so that when the storm comes, and incidentally, the disciples are about to enter into a literal storm, 
they might remember all that the Lord has done. And likewise, we remember, like Philip undoubtedly remembered all that the Lord had done. Remember his goodness. But for now, Philip doesn't get it. Philip says, well, 200 denarii is simply not enough to buy bread. It's 200 days wages. We recently tried to plan a wedding, and then COVID had our uh, plans changed rapidly on us. But one thing I learned from wedding planning is that it's expensive. We looked at caterers, and they were very, very expensive. And of course, what's about to happen isn't the same level of meal that you might expect if you go to a nice wedding. But to feed 100 people is, a th- is thousands of dollars. And yet we learn soon that there are thousands of people. 200 days wages simply wouldn't cut it. Andrew tries to be helpful and points out this boy that has five barley loaves and two probably pickled fishes. But he realizes, well, this is simply not enough. It would barely be enough for the disciples to quench their hunger not to mention the crowd that is rapidly approaching. The barley loaves were the loaves of those working-class people. Think Wonder Bread, but perhaps more healthy. Or better nutrients, at least. But still, none of this would have been nearly enough for the crowd. But Christ does something. He tells them to sit down. And then he doesn't bless the bread, but he gives thanks to the Lord, just as you and I give thanks when we say grace before the table. We don't bless the food on the table. We say, thank you, Lord, for the bounty that you have given us. Of course, if he thanked him for the bounty, it was five cloves and two fishes, not nearly enough for the crowd. And then the text tells us that there were 5,000 men. But the reality is, it makes a difference. The crowd is a crowd of people, and then they number the men, which means that there were probably more than 2,000 people. Think of a crowd like the Christmas tree lighting downtown, but probably even bigger, a huge crowd descending, desiring to see something amazing, crowding around in excitement. But this numbering isn't some sort of weird patriarchal counting that might make some of us uncomfortable. It is a very clear emphasis that there were 5,000 men. Because remember what we just said about the Passover? The fact that the Passover was this holiday in which people got excited and hoped. Hoped just maybe this would be the year that God would deliver them from the Romans. There were 5,000 men that if it was Christ's will, if it was the Lord's will, he could have whipped up and been ready to fight, to fight back at least a few of the Romans. But this isn't what Christ is preparing for, is it? And yet, we often fall into that same trap. We often fall into that same desire of wanting a material solution wanting that material solution right now. We want bread. We want more money. We want a better car, a nicer house. We want our relationships fixed right this minute. 
We want the bread that Christ is about to give, not the man that is Christ who is the bread of life. If you don't get that thing that you want, do you truly believe that God is still good in that denial? The passage goes on to tell us that the people ate their fill. They ate enough so that they were satisfied, like when we eat enough that we're not hungry anymore, nor we're too full, but we're content, comfortable, and at peace. And then Jesus had the disciples gather up all the fragments. This was a Jewish tradition of the time, and they found that they had 12 baskets left. The 12 baskets are rather significant. There are a few numbers when you stumble across them in Scripture make us pause. 12 and 40 being the two most significant. 12 tribes because God, out of Israel, God created the 12 tribes of Israel. And out of Christ, he blessed the 12 disciples. And so here, here John is pointing out that God had provided enough for the 12. Enough for the 12 disciples and enough for the 12 tribes of Israel. The true bread of heaven, Jesus, exceeds the manna given in the wilderness, which went bad after a day, exceeds your desires for whatever worldly goods you desire. Jesus is better. Jesus is truly sufficient. And the crowds make an exclamation, which get closer than people have gotten up until now, as they exclaim, truly, the, the prophet has come into the world. The prophets in the past had fed likewise. Elisha fed a hundred men, and they were satisfied. And Moses, by the grace of God in the wilderness, fed Israel with the, with the manna from heaven. But Jesus does the greatest thing. Out of five loaves and three fishes, he feeds over 5,000 men. He feeds perhaps 20,000 people. I hope by now you see that this miracle isn't about generosity. The people didn't see this miracle, see Jesus give this boy to give away his little bit of dinner, and therefore they pooled their dinner for some sort of delightful potluck on the hillside. Jesus isn't even about feeding, although that is good and beautiful. This miracle is about God's self-disclosure in his Son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the true bread of life, come into the world to feed the hungry, the poor, the sorrowful, and the sick. Jesus has come. Jesus is sufficient. Jesus gives it all so that you might live. If you believe, you are called to follow and trust the Lord in this. Trust that his provision provision will be bountiful. Though it may not be what you want, it will be better than you want. It will bring you into intimacy with Christ. Likewise, if perhaps you don't know Christ or you have that tension of, that, of the ruler who craves, 
I believe, help my unbelief, Christ beckons and says, come, follow me. In me there is more grace than you can imagine. In me there are mo is more goodness than you will ever know. For he is the bread of life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.